You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to talk more about their money. You can find more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky, and welcome to Her Money. There is not a topic that lights up my inbox more, these days at least, than student loans. If you've looked at the statistics recently, you know today's college grads are coming out of school with about 33000 on average in student loans, which of course means that many people, more than half, have significantly more than that. And what we're learning is that it really sets them back in terms of taking on life. Young adults who are strapped under the weight of a lot of student loans, they're getting married later. They're having kids later. They're buying homes later. They're just putting adult life on pause while they try to get a grip on this massive debt. And what we're also learning is that the best defense may be a good offense. In other words, taking the time before you borrow while you've still got kids in high school to look not only at college as a value proposition, making sure that you go to a school that really wants you and is willing to give you significant amounts of merit aid in order to have you there, but that you're making the right choices when it comes to borrowing, that you're maximizing your federal student aid before you dip into the pool for private student aid, that you fill out the FAFSA, the free application for federal student aid, correctly. Is it confusing and complicated? You bet. Which is why I've asked Kelly Peeler, who runs a company called NextGenVest, to join me today on the show. She is a whiz at simplifying these matters and has built a system of mentors to actually help students going through the process get a helping hand. Hi, Kelly. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So take us a step back. You and I have talked about this before, but our listeners haven't. Tell me a little bit about NextGenVest. Sure. What's it set up to do? What kind of service do you provide? Why'd you do this in the first place? Absolutely. So uh, at NextGenVest, we like to say that we're the most convenient and trustworthy way for Gen Z, so a, st- a notch below millennials, to make all their financial decisions, starting with their largest, which is paying for college. And we do this by partnering them with a money mentor, all over text message. So a student can get one-on-one help, um, and I can talk more about money mentors in a second, but they can get one-on-one help, um, whether it be 11 o'clock on a Sunday or 7 a.m. on a Wednesday with um, something that's a very stressful process, um, which is literally like your first mortgage. Um, you're making that decision as a family or individually as a student at the age of 18, and some students um, are, are real, that will be their only mortgage to some extent. Um, so what money mentors do 
do is they're kind of like your personal assistant through this whole process. So they will put together college lists um, that are financially within your realm. Uh, they will help you get SAT uh, fee waivers. They will help you source scholarships. They will help you negotiate their, your tuition. Um, and they will help you as you go into college, figure out all those other things too, like setting up your first budget, um, helping you pick out a debit card that has low ATM fees. So they're really there to be your um, your guide through um, through pretty. Uh, complex and, and opaque process. How much does this service cost? It costs um, $29.95 after three, a three-month free trial. Um, we can actually give a free code to your listeners um, with good. the Her Money free code. And the way that it works is you can go to nextgenvest.com and it's very simple. A student can just put in their phone number and then a free code, Her Money, um, and they're immediately connected with a money mentor. And is this money mentor somebody who will be consistent with them through the process? Yes. So we, and I can kind of go into what a money mentor is. They're actually trained college students who all of them have gone through the process themselves. A lot of them are first generation college students. So they were kind of figuring all this out by themselves. And we put them through a pretty rigorous training program uh, and consistently are training them on new things. Um, so we have money mentors, whether it be at UC San Diego to U Chicago to University of Houston, to NYU, to Princeton. So kind of uh, across the country, students can speak to and help guide you through the process. Take a step back with me right now and let's let's focus on the FAFSA and the process yep. this year. The application came out on October 1st, so a little over a month ago. How have things been proceeding? Is it a different process this year? Is it more confusing? I'd say that it's a few kind of key things that we're realizing just from the message, the thousands and thousands of text messages that we get from our texting software. And really the big thing that stood out is students being totally unprepared um, and not organized. Um, so you need a lot of documentation to fill out the FAFSA, um, which takes a lot of time to kind of organize. So it might be your tax returns. It might be um, an investment portfolio, bank statements, all of your ID information, all of that stuff is we found a lot of families not having super organized. Mm -hmm. So um, what we really tried to do is is get people so that in one sitting when that came out October 1st, they could actually submit it then as opposed to running around procrastinating, trying to get all the stuff together. Because once you start it, you kind of want to finish it. Otherwise, we find families doing it months later. And as students have dived in, are the schools ready to receive the information earlier than they had been in the past? Um, I would say a kind of across the board, it tends to go... Uh, it kind of tends to go city to city, but we've seen a lot of schools caught up very off guard um, around the changes. So even even with best intentions, um, the average college counselor ratio in the U.S. is one college counselor to a little under 500 students. So they have a big job to um, be able to communicate large decisions um, around a very stressful process. And so that's why we actually um, hosted a, a national campaign called Finish the FAFSA. We've um, now had uh, college, trained college students do thousands and thousands of 
in-person workshops um, to help students get that, get their SAT FAFSA submitted earlier and to really support college counselors. Why is it important to finish it earlier at this point? It's a kind of a complex reason, but one, it, it really has a lot to do with um, starting the process as early as possible. So the deadlines are kind of in the spring, but uh, really what it is is that if a student and a family is able to understand their effective um, contribution, their EFC that they get after submitting their FAFSA, they can better plan what colleges they apply to later in the spring if you're not doing early action or early decision. Um, they, it also sort of starts the process for individual financial aid offices within colleges to to really kind of start evaluating how much aid you could get. Um, so when you were mentioning the FAFSA, that's primarily for accessing federal aid, so money from the government, but it's also relevant for institutional aid from actual colleges themselves. So what we find is that if you procrastinate your FAFSA, you will not get your financial aid package from a particular university until much later, and it might not be what you want. So you might have to be in a scrambled position, and we dealt with a lot of students this past summer who are $5,000 short, and then they're like, oh my goodness, I need to you know, pay my fall semester tuition, and I'm $5,000 short, I need to get a private loan at 12% interest. Which so, is not the scenario that we, we want people to be in. Exactly. So at this point in the calendar year, and we're, you know, we're in the fall, we're heading to a lot of application deadlines. Yep. What's your advice for students and their families who need to fill out the FAFSA? And, and remembering that this is not something you do once. This is something right. you have to do every year you're in school. Yes. the I mean, the number one thing is to fill it out. <laughs> so a lot of families, so just by way of reference, despite the fact that the average college student graduates with $37,000 in student loan debt, last year alone, students left about $2.7 billion of free federal aid unclaimed because they did not fill out their FAFSA. So step number one is fill it out, even if you think that you might not qualify. And since you're in the thick of it, I mean, what sort of surprising anecdotal scenarios have yep. you seen about people qualifying? Because, I mean, I talk about this with friends and yep. who have kids heading to school, and mm -hmm. there is this perception that if you've got two working parents... Right. And you, you know, you own a home, yep. you may not qualify. Right. And and what we say is that, and this is sort of why we like to say we're the most convenient service, is that this is a this is something that a lot of people will just not fill out because they're like, I don't qualify. I don't want to take the time out of my Saturday to do this. And the fact of the matter is that that $2.7 billion is there for a reason that people did not claim. So our most surprising anecdotes are really around families assuming that because they might have just bought a new house that they wouldn't qualify, but they don't take into account the mortgage or um, kind of their whole debt profile with that decision. Um, we see a lot of students not kind of pestering their parents to to do it because they see that their parents just got a new car and they're just kind of assuming that that means that they wouldn't qualify for aid because they don't get they might not get free and reduced lunch at school. They think that they wouldn't get aid from a college. And then we also see students who just have don't even know it exists because they might come from lower income schools. So really, it's kind of all across the board. But of course, it's not a guarantee. But it's, you know, if you have all the information, it might take you three hours to sit down and do it. So it's kind of like, why not? And it's also really important, too, because later on, you might not qualify for now. But if things happen, like a parent loses a job, someone gets in an accident, you have huge medical bills, those 
later on, if you're, you know, sophomore and junior in college, then you might be able to qualify by submitting your FAFSA. So it's important to just do it now. It can take you three hours if you get organized, and it's really not that painful. And you have a record that you actually did do it. I've also heard that if you don't get it in early, Mm -hmm. there are pools of merit aid from the particular colleges that exhaust themselves. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, money is, is is limited for colleges. A lot of colleges are very strapped. They like the idea of, for money, they like the idea of giving out scholarships, but it's not ever ending. So it's a pie. And submitting your FAFSA is what I was mentioning before, which is it's sort of like the on button for financial aid offices to get your information, to start evaluating, and to really feed you through their own pipeline of, do you qualify? Yes or no. And it also allows you the opportunity to then negotiate your financial aid package later on. So let's talk about that. But before we do that, let me just remind everybody, Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one, information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married, divorced, starting a new career. And again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. We're talking with Kelly Peeler. You've had great success in helping students find hundreds of thousands of dollars that they didn't get before. Right. So just last semester, so we introduced the service last spring. So we're we're kind of hitting the ground running and really um, impacting, as you said, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of students across the country. And what we found is that, of course, like most things, not a guarantee, but... Every college is essentially required to allow you to attempt to appeal your your tuition. So how how it works, and this is I can kind of tie it back into a timeline. You submit your FAFSA, a financial aid office, which is like a group of people, kind of like the admissions office, are on campus. They evaluate your financial status as a family. They will kind of package together a financial aid award letter, which is literally a letter that they send to you, which is a breakdown of scholarships, Pell grants that you might get, merit based aid, and then. If you get if you receive that and you have a lot of other offers, you can write an appeal letter to that university and say over very different things, you know, I got into these three schools. Do you think that you could increase my aid here? My family, since submitting their FAFSA, um, has had a total change in their financial situation. Would you reconsider my need-based aid? Um, And so for a variety of different ways, you can potentially negotiate your aid. So we helped students get about $260,000 in two months alone last spring. Can you pit one school against another? We've done that. Um, and, uh, that might be a controversial thing, but we're, we're very pro student. We help and employ 250 students across the country. Um, we're helping students who we view really don't have anyone else to kind of be helping them. So our kind of main objective is do everything possible for, for the student, uh, and help them through a process where they might not know that that even exists, that you can do that. So you might, our, our philosophy is you might as well try everything possible before taking out a private loan where your interest will just compound dramatically. And if you are then successful, I mean, it just the burden on the student through the years is so much less. I I know you say that 30% of students Mm -hmm. who take out student loans end up dropping out of college because of financial anxiety. So this is, I mean, just dealing with the problem before you have the problem seems to me to be 
crucial. Right. And also, I mean, and we were talking before, we helped a student negotiate based on different colleges, getting $49,000 more to go to University of Pennsylvania at Wharton. And he he frankly just wouldn't have been able to have gone to a top Ivy League school if we didn't help him. And so the difference in earnings potential, in um, career trajectory, in having a global worldview, you know, a lot of different things of going to an amazing institution just wouldn't be possible if, if we just didn't even try. So like I said, we're very pro-student and um, want to extend every resource to them. Well, hurrah, hurrah for him. As that's, uh, the, the listeners know that Penn is my my alma mater, so, so we always like to hear stories like that. Tell me about you before we wrap this up, because this is clearly incredibly personal to you. Yes. I mean, I so this is my third social enterprise um, that I've built uh, since college. Um, focusing on the student demographic. So I am a student advocate to the core, um, and I'm just super passionate about this audience. I believe, I mean, Next Gen Invest stands for investing in the next generation. Um, and I really, I just have so much hope for this audience. And really the reason why is uh, that passion combined with what I studied in college, which was the history of financial crises. So I was a huge bookworm and was lucky enough to study 250 years worth of leading indicators of financial crises during the 2008 crisis, and I see the exact same indicators around the student loan market. So um, if you look at if that were to happen or where the state of um, students are with their huge debt profiles, so $1.3 trillion in outstanding student loan debt, $37,000 for the actual for the average college student, to me, that's a demo and an audience that I love, and they're they're really just not making the best decisions around their biggest financial decision, which will follow them forever because you can't default on student loans. So in terms of impact, I feel like this is this is the way that I can make the biggest impact for the next generation. So where can people find you, find your coaches, find your mentors? There's so many people out there who just need help. <laughs> yep. Um, so so to find um, our money mentors, you can go to nextgenvest.com. That's N-E-X-T-G-E-N-V-E-S-T.com. And put in, uh, for a student, put in your phone number and then the free code for um, her money, which is her money. Uh, and then for me, um, I write a Forbes column um, specifically focused on student loan trends and really elevating personal student stories that we see and we see are kind of going untold. Um, it's very stressful. We we actually have our highest traffic volume at 10 p.m. on a Sunday. So it's a very lonely process. But I'm also on Snapchat. We have uh, we do a t- we have a huge Snapchat following um, on our next Invest Snapchat. You can actually view a college, a new college tour every day. So it's the cheapest way to visit a college campus. But yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for the discount code for our listeners course, for helping yes. them. We appreciate it. <laughs> Kelly Peeler from Next Gen Vest. We will keep everyone posted on the progress of this great company. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Kelly has joined me in the studio. Hey, Kel. Hi, Jean. We got questions? We have questions. Our first one is from Twitter. Tawny Brentano tweeted, asking, my 22-year-old is just getting ready to graduate college and needs advice on a good credit card. Please, suggestions. So, first of all, congratulations, because that is a very big milestone. If your 22-year-old has absolutely no credit history, and chances are, unless you put her or him 
on one of your accounts as an authorized user, there's no credit history there. Um, they may have trouble getting a plain vanilla credit card. In that case, you want a secured credit card, which is essentially an account where you make a small deposit with the bank that issues the card, and that becomes your credit limit. And then you just maintain the account in good standing for usually 18 to 24 months, and it will become a typical credit card, a plain vanilla credit card. Um, you can find a list of good secured credit cards at cardhub.com. So put that information in your back pocket. Otherwise, when you're getting your first credit card, if you do have credit history behind you, you've got to think about how you're going to use that card. Of course, I'm a fan of paying off your balance every single month. But if you believe that you're not going to do that, and sometimes with people coming out of school, furnishing an apartment, there are expenses that you do have to carry for a couple of months. In that case, the interest rate is so much more important than any sort of rewards that you would get on the card. So look for a card with a, a low interest rate with no annual fee. And there are many of them out there. Um, you can find a good list at cardhub.com. And if you decide that you are going to pay them off every single month in full, no questions ever, a good card for first-time users is a Chase Sapphire family of cards. And they, they do have one, I believe, for people who don't have an incredibly long credit history. And I think there's also one in the Capital One Venture family as well. I know there are so many cards. Does a card exist that has not just an annual or introductory 0% APR or no annual fee, but actually has no annual fee and APR moving forward or for more than one year? Or is that a unicorn? Yeah, that's a unicorn. Okay. That doesn't, that doesn't, uh, unicorns actually exist. That doesn't even <laughs> exist. It, there are cards that don't have an annual fee. Year going forward, okay. year in and year out. And they tend to be fairly bare bones cards. You're not going to get rewards on a card right. like that. But as far as the interest rate goes, they, they call it a teaser rate for mm -hmm. a reason. They're teasing you right. to get you to roll over a balance in some cases or to bring you into the fold with a 0% or a very low interest rate. But generally, a year to 18 months down the road, the interest rate's going to go sky high. Okay, great. Our next question is from Michelle. She emailed us. She has listened to the podcast for about a year now, and she says, many times you and your guests have talked about doing what you're good at and enjoy. I am 38 and still have no idea what I'm good at. How do I find what I'm good at? So a couple of suggestions. You can certainly go through the process of going through some testing. I know a number of people who've tried to retool their careers, who've gone through Briggs-Myers or other sort of personality testing that can root you into a career or at least a field where you feel like you've got some undermining personality strengths. Because skills can be learned, but personality attributes are a little bit harder to adopt. So I might consider doing that. But the other suggestion that has always worked for me is to think back to what you enjoyed doing when you were 11. Hmm. Um, and 11 is a very particular age that is like before puberty, before middle school, which was a good time for precisely no people. 
If you can remember what you liked doing when you were 11, chances are you're going to like something fairly similar today. So I would try those two things. Do you remember what you liked doing at 11? I really liked writing when I was really? 11. Yeah, I remember in summer camp working on both. God, I haven't thought of this in such a long time. Oh, in summer camp, you got to pick two different activities that were sort of activity periods, and I picked the newspaper, the camp newspaper, but I also picked the radio station. How telling. We had, I went to a camp called Asrui of Olensang Ruby Union Institute in Wisconsin when I was 11, and WOSR was the radio station, and that was my first radio experience, and I haven't thought of that in many, many years. Well, look at you now. There you go. There you go. So... That's my two cents on that. Thanks, Jean. Thanks. Just let everybody know where they can send us questions. Tweet us at Jean Chatsky with the hashtag HerMoneyPodcast. We're on Facebook, JeanChatsky.com, LinkedIn, Instagram. We're everywhere. Thanks, Kelly. In this week's Thrive segment, we're talking about fees, investment fees in particular. A median income couple, both of whom work, may pay nearly $155,000 in investment fees over 40 years. That's according to research from NerdWallet and Deimos, the public policy organization. That's based on average contribution rates, 401k fees, and plan costs. And it could come close to one third of total retirement savings returns. So how can you cut these costs? Number one, if you don't trade frequently, research your fund's annual inactivity fees and maintenance costs, which can range from $50 to $200 combined. If you see that type of fee adding up in your case, it may be time to change funds. And you can compare funds' fees and expenses using FINRA's Fund Analyzer Tool or at Morningstar.com. Two, check your 401k plan's summary plan description or email the HR department to find out if you or your company foots the bill for its administrative fees. If the fee is high, invest enough to max out your matching dollars and consider putting the rest of your savings in an IRA. And do you have a fee-only financial planner? Well, it's important to know whether that fee is being charged per hour by task as a percentage of the assets that planner manages for you or as a combination. NAPFA, the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, has on its website a list of tough questions to ask your financial advisor. Pay very close attention to the compensation question. So, to review... If you don't trade frequently, you're going to look at inactivity fees and maintenance costs. You're going to check out your 401k plan summary plan description for administrative fees. And if you've got a fee-only financial planner, you are going to look at how much you're paying for and what you're getting for those dollars. I want to thank Kelly Peeler so much for being on the show today. A big thanks, too, to our sponsor, Fidelity. Coming up next week on the show, we're going to have an interview, actually two, coming to us from FinCon, which we attended in San Diego. We'll be sitting down and talking with millennial money expert, 
Stephanie O'Connell, as well as Liz Weston, one of the best personal finance minds around. We're looking forward to bringing that to you, and we hope that you'll join us for that. As always, we ask you to share our show. Please let your friends know what we're up to. If you're enjoying this, then post it to your Facebook page. Tweet about us. Leave us a review. We would really appreciate you spreading the word. We also want to tell you that our music comes through Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX, and we'll talk soon.